0: Chapter Two of Murder at Bridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Murder at Bridge by Ann Austin. Chapter Two. As Special Investigator Dundee drove through the city of Hamilton at a speed of sixty miles an hour, his way being cleared by traffic policemen warned by the shrill official siren which served him as a horn he had little time to think connectedly of the fact that nita selim had been murdered during a bridge game in her rented home in primrose meadows even after the broad sleekness of sheridan road stretched before him he could do little more than to realize the shock which had numbed him lovely nita as the society editor of the morning news had called her was dead How, why, he did not know. He had asked no details of Penny Crane. Funny, thorny little Penny. Loyal little Penny. Judge Marshall had telephoned police headquarters. She had told him breathlessly over the telephone. But I made him let me call you as soon as he had hung up. I wanted our office to be in on this right from the first. Beautiful, seductive, Nita Selim, almost cuddling under his arms within three minutes of meeting him, dead. A vision of her black pansy eyes, so wide and luminous and wistful as they had looked sideways and upward to his, pleading for him to join her after-bridge cocktail party, nearly made him crash into a lumbering furniture-van. Those eyes were luminous no longer, could never again snap the padlocks of slave-chains upon any man, as Penny had expressed it, dead. And she had been so warmly alive, even as she had retreated from him at his mention of the fact that he was attached to the office of the district attorney as a special investigator. What had she feared then? Was her death a payment for some recent or long-standing crime? Or had she simply been withdrawing from contamination with a flat foot? No, she had been afraid, horribly afraid, of some ulterior purpose behind his innocent courtesy in driving Penelope Crane to break away in. Well, speculation now was idle, he told himself, as he noted that his speedometer had dropped from sixty to thirty in his preoccupation. He speeded again, but was soon forced to stop and ask his way into Primrose Meadows. The vague directions of a farmer's son lost him nearly eight precious minutes, during which his friend— Captain Strawn of the Homicide Squad might be bungling things rather badly. But at last he found the ornate pair of pillars spanned by the painted legend Primrose Meadows and drove through them into what soon became a rutted lane. Almost a quarter of a mile from the entrance, he found the isolated house, unmistakable because of the lineup of private cars parked before the short stretch of paved sidewalk and the added presence of police cars and motorcycles. Dundee turned his own car into the driveway, leading from the street along the right side of the house, towards the two-car garage in the rear. Ahead of his roadster were two other cars, and a glance toward the open garage showed that a Ford Coupe was housed there. As he was descending, Captain Strawn's voice hailed him from an open window of the room nearest the garage. Hello, Bonnie. Been expecting you. Damnedest business you ever saw. There's a door from this room. On to the porch. Hop up and come in. Dundee obeyed. Driving in, he had noted that a wide porch, upheld by round white pillars, stretched across the front of the gabled brick house and extended halfway along its right side, past a room which was obviously a solarium, with its continuous windows, gay awnings, and— visible through the glittering panes, orange and black, wicker furniture. It was easy to swing himself up to the floor of the porch. Strawn flung open the door, which led into the back room, remarking with a grin. "'Don't be afraid I'm gumming up any fingerprints. Care has already been over the room. The Selim woman's bedroom,' he explained, the room she was killed in. "'You have been on the job,' Dundee complimented his former chief. "'Sure,' Strawn acknowledged proudly. "'Can't be too quick on our stumps when it's one of these high-society murders. "'Dr. Price will be here any minute now, and my men have been all over the premises, basement to attic. "'Of course it was an outside job, plain as the nose on your face, "'and we haven't found a trace of the murderer.' "'Although Mrs. Selim had taken the house furnished, it was obvious that this big bedroom of hers was not exactly as the Crane family had left it. A little too pretty, a little too aggressively feminine, with its chaise lounge heaped with silk and lace pillows, its superfluity of big and little lamps, its bed draped with golden-yellow taffeta, its dressing-table. But he could not let critical eyes linger on the triple-mirrored vanity dresser, for on the bench before it sat a tiny figure, the head bowed so low that some of the black curls had fallen into a large open bowl of powder she was no longer wearing the brown silk summer coat whose open front had given him a glimpse of pale yellow chiffon he saw the dress now-a low cut sleeveless fluffy affair-but he really had eyes only for the brownish red hole on the left side of the back of the bodice, about halfway between shoulder and waist a waist so small he could have spanned it with his two hands, including its band of fuchsia velvet ribbon. There also had been a bow of fuchsia velvet ribbon on the lace and straw hat she had swung so charmingly less than five hours ago. "'Shot through the heart, I guess,' Strawn commented. "'Took a good marksman to find her heart, shooting her through the back. Funny thing, too.' "'Nobody heard the shot. Leastways.' "'None of the crowd penned up in the living room will admit they did. "'They'll all hang together and lie like sixty "'to keep us from finding out anything "'that might point to one of their precious bunch. "'But if a gun with a Maxim silencer was used, "'as it must have been if that whole crew ain't lying, "'then the gunman must have been good, "'because you can't sight with a Maxim screwed onto a rod, you know.' "'Have your men found the gun?' Dundee asked. "'Of course not.' "'or I'd know whether it had been a maxim on it or not,' Strawn retorted. "'My theory is,' he added impressively, "'that somebody with a grudge against this dame hired a gunman "'to hang around till he got her dead to rights, then plop!' "'And he imitated the soft, thudding sound "'made by the discharge of a bullet from a gun equipped with a silencer. "'Doesn't it seem rather strange that a professional gunman "'should have chosen such a time?' with men arriving in cars, and the house full of women who might wander into this room at any minute to bump off his victim? Dundee asked. Well, there ain't no explanation, Captain Strawn contended, outside of the fact that my men have gone over the whole house and grounds without finding the gun. I've got other evidence it was an outside job. Look. Dundee followed the chief of homicide squad to one of the two windows that looked out upon the driveway. Both were open, since the May Day was exceptionally warm, even for the Middle West. The unscreened window, from which he obediently leaned, was almost directly in line with the vanity dressing-table across the room. "'Look, see how them vines have been torn?' Strawn directed, pointing to a rambler rose, which hugged the outside frame of the window. "'And look hard enough at the flower-bed down below and you'll see his footprints. "'Of course we've measured them.' "'and Cain, as you see, is guarding them till my man comes to make plaster casts of them.' "'Yes, sir,' he hoisted himself up to the window-ledge, aimed as best he could, then slipped down and beat it across the meadow. "'Then,' Dundee began slowly, "'I wonder why this Mrs. Selim didn't see that figure crouched in the window, since she must have been powdering her face and looking into the middle of the three mirrors, the one which reflects this very window. "'How do you know she was powdering her face?' not looking for something in a drawer strawn demanded truculently for three reasons dundee answered almost apologetically first her powder puff as i am sure you notice is still clutched in her right hand second there is no drawer open and no drawer was open unless someone has closed it since the murder whereas on the other hand her powder box is open third the left side of her face is unevenly coated with the powder while the other is heavily but evenly powdered. Therefore I can't see why she didn't scream or turn round when she heard your gunman clambering up to her window, or even when he had crouched in it. I don't see how she could help seeing him. "'Well, what do you think?' Strawn asked sourly, after he had tested the visibility of the window from the dressing-table mirror. "'I'm afraid, Captain Strawn, that there are only two explanations possible.' The first, of course, is that Nita Selim was quite deaf or very near-sighted. I happen to know from having met her today. You met her today? Strawn interrupted incredulously. Dundee explained briefly, then went on. As I was saying, I have good reason to know she was not deaf, but I can't say as to her being near-sighted, except that it is my observation that people who are extremely near-sighted do not have very wide eyes and no creases in the brows.' I am fairly sure she did not wear glasses at all, because glasses, worn every few hours a day, leave a mark across the nose, or show pinched red spots on each side of the bridge of the nose. You must have had a good hard look at her, Strawn gibbed, his eyes twinkling, and his harsh, thin-lipped mouth pulling down at one corner in what he thought was a genial smile. I did, Dundee retorted. Well, conceding that she was neither deaf nor half blind, she would necessarily have heard and seen her assailant before he shot her. What's the other explanation? Strawn was becoming impatient. That the person who killed her was so well known to her, and his or her presence in this room so natural a thing that she paid no attention to his or her movements, and was concentrating on the job of powdering her pretty face. You mean one of that gang of society folks in there? and Strawn jerked a thumb towards the left side of the house. Very probably, Dundee agreed. But where's the gun? Strawn argued. I tell you, my men. This was a premeditated murder, of course, Dundee interrupted. The Maxim silencer, unless they are all lying about not hearing a shot, proves that. Silencers are damned hard to get hold of, but people with plenty of money can manage most things, and since murder was premeditated... It is better to count on the fact that the murderer, or murderess, had planned a pretty safe hiding-place for the gun and the silencer. Oh, not necessarily in the house, nor even near the house, he hastened to assure Strawn, who was trying to break in. By the way, how long after Mrs. Selim was killed was her death discovered? Or do you know? I haven't been able to get much out of that bunch in there, not even out of Penelope Crane, who ought to be willing to help. "'seeing as how she works for the district attorney. "'But I guess she's waiting to spill it all to you, if she knows anything. "'So you and Sanderson will get all the credit.' "'Now look here, chief,' Dundee protested, "'laying a hand on Strawn's shoulder as he reverted to the name "'by which he had addressed the head of the homicide squad for nearly a year. "'We're going to be friends, aren't we? Same as always. "'We know pretty well how to work together, don't we?' No use to begin pulling against each other. "'Guess so,' Strawn growled. But he was obviously pleased and relieved. "'Maybe you'd better have a crack at that crowd yourself. I hear Doc Price's car always has a bum-spark plug. I'll stick around with him until he gets going good on his job. Then, if you'll excuse me for butting in, I'll join your party in the living room. And good luck to you, Bonnie.' Dundee took the door he knew must lead into the central hall, but found himself in an enclosed section of it, a small foyer between the main hall and Nita Selim's bedroom. There was room for a telephone-table in its chair, as well as for a small sofa, large enough for two to sit upon comfortably. He paused to open the door across from the telephone-table, and found that it opened into a closet, whose hangers and hat-forms now held the outdoor clothing, belonging to Nita's guests. Nice clothes, the smart but unostentatious hats and coats of moneyed people of good taste. He observed a little enviously, before he opened the door, which led into the main hall, which bisected the main floor of the house, until it reached Nita's room. Another door in the section, behind the staircase, leading to the gabled second story, next claimed his attention opening it he discovered a beautifully fitted guest lavatory there was even a fully appointed dressing-table for women's use so that none of her guests had had the slightest excuse to invade the privacy of mrs selim's bedroom and bath unless specifically invited to do so rather a well-planned house this dundee concluded as he closed the door upon the green porcelain fixtures and walked slowly toward the wide archway that led from the hall into the large living-room. He had a curious reluctance to intrude upon that assembled and guarded company of Hamilton's real society. They were all Penny's friends, and Penny was his friend. But his first swift, all-seeing glance about the room reassured him. No hysterics here. These people brought race and breeding, even into the presence of death. Whatever emotions had torn them, when Nita Salim's body was discovered, were almost unguessable now. A stout short woman of about thirty was tapping a foot nervously as she talked to the man who was bending over her chair. John C. Drake, that was. Dundee had met him, knew him to be a vice-president of the Hamilton National Bank, in charge of the Trust Department. Penelope Crane was occupying half of a love-seat, with Lois Dunlap the hands of the girl and of the woman, clinging together for mutual comfort. That tall, thin, oldish man, with the waxed grey moustache, must be Judge Hugo Marshall, and the pretty girl, leaning trustingly against his shoulder, must be his wife, Karen Marshall, who had jumped at her first proposal during her first season. Yes, well-bred people, he concluded, as his eyes swept on, and then stopped, a little bewildered, Who was that man? He didn't belong somehow, and his hands trembled visibly as he tried to light a cigarette. Leaning, not nonchalantly, but actually for support, against the brocaded coral silk drapes of a pair of wide, long windows set in the east wall. Suddenly Dundee had it. Broadway. This was no Hamiltonian, no comfortably rich and socially secure Middle-Westerner. Broadway in every line of his two well-tailored clothes, in the polished smoothness of his dark hair. "'Why, it's Mr. Dundee at last!' Penny cried, turning in the S-shaped seat, before he had time to finish his mental inventory of the room's occupants. She jumped to her feet and threaded a swift way over Oriental rugs and between the two bridge-tables still occupying the center of the big room. Still cluttered with score pads, tally cards, and playing cards. I've been wondering if you had stopped to have dinner first, she taunted him. Then laying a hand on his arm, she faced the living room eagerly. This is Mr Dundee, folks, special investigator, attached to the district attorney's office, and a grand detective. He solved the Holgarth murder case, you know, and the Hillcrest murder. "'And he's my friend, so I want y'all to trust him "'and tell him things without being afraid of him.' "'Then, rather ceremoniously but swiftly, "'she presented her friends. "'Judge and Mrs. Hugo Marshall, "'Mr. and Mrs. Tracy Miles, "'Mr. and Mrs. John C. Drake, "'Mrs. Dunlap, Janet Raymond, "'Polly Beale, Clive Hammond, and... "'At that point Penny hesitated, "'then rather stiffly included the Broadway man.' as Mr. Dexter Sprague of New York. "'Thank you, Miss Crane,' Dundee said. "'Now will you please tell me, if you know whether all those invited to both the bridge party and the cocktail party are here?' Penny's face flamed. "'Ralph Hamilton, Clive's brother, hasn't come yet. I—I imagine I've been stood up,' she confessed, with a faint attempt at gaiety. And Ralph Hammond was the man who had once belonged rather exclusively to Penny, and who according to her own confession had succumbed most completely to nita selim's charms dundee noted filing the reflection for further reference please mr dundee won't you detain us as short a time as possible lois dunlap asked as she advanced towards him mr dunlap is away on a fishing-ship and i don't like to leave my three youngsters too long they are really too much of a handful for the governess, over a period of hours. "'I shall detain all of you no longer than is absolutely necessary,' Dundee told her gently. "'But I am afraid I must warn you that I can't let you go home very soon, unless one or more of you has something of vital importance to tell, something which will clear up or materially help to clear up this bad business.' He paused a long half-minute, then asked curtly, "'I am to conclude that no one has anything at all to volunteer?' There was no answer, other than a barely perceptible drawing together in self-defence of the minds and hearts of those who had been friends for so long. Very well, Dundee conceded abruptly. Then I must put all of you through a routine examination, since every one of you is, of course, a possible suspect. End of chapter 2